Let me just say we love your pastors. We love your, your church. Uh, I can't tell you the, the kind of connections we've had. We've lived in Tallahassee for 31 years. I've been at Wildwood for 24 of those years. And a lot of our long-term relationships are with people that are here at Four Oaks. When my wife comes in the second service, she'll sit with uh, um, Jenny and Carrie Schoolfield because they've been friends of ours for 20-some years. Uh, Debbie worked with Tom Argersinger, uh, I guess worked under you, Tom, for 14 years at CCS. All of our kids went to CCS. Uh, we've known Josh Hughes since he was a little boy, you know. Um, Renee Stown is over there. She's been uh, my administrative assistant for 16 years. I don't know how she's put up with it that long, but uh, we have those connections. Uh, we, we stole J.P. O'Hara away from you guys uh, some year or so ago. He's our, our sound guy at Wildwood. And uh, actually, some of our former members are here at, at Four Oaks, too. Um, and... Um, I'm glad to know where you are. I finally kind of caught up with you. I, I, I have, I'm taking names uh, here. Uh, but I'm not feeling too bad about that because we have a lot of your former members at Wildwood too. So we kind of share back and forth. And if you scratch Paul Gilbert under the surface, he's really a closet Presbyterian. Did you know that kind of in some way? So nothing like outing your pastor here in front of your, your, your church. But labels don't matter to us. What matters to us is the the commonality we share in the, the Word of God, the, the hope of the Gospel, and ultimately the glory of God, that's, that's the thing that grips us together. And so we're deeply appreciative of these relationships and pray that they'll continue for many years to come. Now, I've been assigned a passage here, okay? You guys are going through the book of uh, Acts, and I believe the passage is Acts 18.24 through chapter 19. If it's not, that's too bad. That's what I'm doing. Uh, I don't have any other options here this morning. And what we discover in this section of Scripture, we're going to look at three encounters, uh, three different responses to the gospel in this section of Scripture. And the first is Apollos and then the disciples of John. And what we discover there is that there were large gaps in their knowledge. Okay, And that kind of presses on us to understand the need for a solid and form faith and then we encounter these guys called the sons of Sceva. That's in chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. And these are, are men that distorted the faith and actually used it for their own purposes. They, they kind of thought the gospel was about them and their uh, uh, you know, usefulness. They, they, it was like a toy to play with. And we'll discover the need in, in that particular section to have a faith that is personal and internal. And then finally, we'll look at Paul's ministry in Ephesus, where the people there actually rejected the faith. So you had gaps in faith, gaps in knowledge, you had distortions of faith, and you have rejection of faith, and all three of these things speak to us in some very significant ways. And this thing about the sons of Sceva, uh, using the gospel and making it about them as a toy to play with. I, there's kind of a story that comes out of this. I uh, have these five grandchildren in Germany because my son is an army major and he's stationed in Wiesbaden. And so we've been over there lots of times to see them over the years they've been there. And uh, just this past February, my son invited Debbie and I to go 
back over there to spend my 65th birthday with them. And they paid our way, you know, over there, so which is really a nice uh, birthday present. And we took a little side trip to London, which is a nice thing to do since we were over there. And all five grandchildren went, so, so much for the vacation of a lifetime, you know, with the five grandkids. Uh, but one of the necessary stops, if you go there, is Westminster Abbey. You familiar with that? You know, kind of the center of Western civilization. So all five grandkids are in Westminster Abbey. Just let me remind you of who's kind of buried there, okay? You know, Sir Isaac Newton, George Friedrich Handel, William Wilberforce, these names familiar to you, Charles Dickens, um, Alfred Tennyson and Robert Browning, the poets, Rudyard Kipling, David Livingstone, you remember him? Uh, the explorer, and then uh, one that I didn't know is Charles Darwin's also buried there at Westminster Abbey. And this is the place of kings and queens, the coronation place, the place of weddings. Uh, English kings and queens are buried there. So you kind of get the point, you know, that this is, this is a kind of a sacred place in, in Western civilization. And so I have this grandson. I think we have a picture of him up here. You can kind of see who he is. Um, he doesn't look too mischievous, does he? So he's in, he's in Westminster Abbey, okay? And, and his parents are walking him around and looking at all these things. And then in one section of the abbey, there are these rows of candles, and they do this in big cathedrals. And usually for prayer, trying to remember someone that has died, and so all these candles. So it's a very kind of a sacred moment, a sacred space. And so this, this kid goes up, He's fascinated with candles and fire, you know how kids are. He goes, up to the, he goes up to the candles and looks at them, and he goes, <laughs> he blew a whole bunch of them out, you know. His parents kind of got him out of there right away. Here's a, here's a kid who thought Westminster Abbey was about him. He didn't quite get the whole point. Now let's dive into this, Acts 19. Let's dive into these stories where we discover our need for a bold faith, a personal faith, a solid faith. Acts 18, beginning in verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures, and had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And then in chapter 19, Paul is in Ephesus. It says, beginning in verse 1, As it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. We've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Isn't that something? I think what this points to here in a few moments, you'll see the need for a solid, knowledgeable, informed, biblically orthodox faith that these people at this moment did not have. 
So let me pray for a moment as we begin this. Father, I would ask you to open our eyes and our ears and show us what you want us to learn, to be impacted by, to take away from these sacred scriptures as we learn the history of this account and understand its implications for us. Meet our needs and show us your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Apollos now appears on the scene for the first time. He's an Egyptian follower of Jesus, and if you'll note some of his qualities in this passage, he is eloquent, learned, fervent, he's brave. He's an important person. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is concerned about the Corinthians dividing up their loyalties between certain apostles. And in the first chapter, Paul says, some of you say you're followers of Paul, and some say followers of Apollos, and some say followers of Peter, right? In other words, Apollos is in good company being compared to Paul and Peter in this particular passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But with all these qualities that he had, apparently there were gaps in his understanding. And we're not told exactly what he was missing. It said he proclaimed accurately the things concerning Jesus, but then this husband and wife team pull him off to the side. And here's a, a woman that was very knowledgeable. We have a lot of women at Wildwood. We call them, I kind of call them the Bible girls. You know, they teach BCF and precepts and one's in seminary trying to, uh, you know, gain knowledge kind of for her personal growth and so forth. So this woman was a, like, a, like a student and pulls Apollos off to the side and helps him understand the gospel more clearly. We're not sure exactly what he was missing, but one thing that he possessed, and I would say this is really important for all of us, the greatest virtue that Apollos had with all of his strengths is that he was teachable. He was willing to keep learning in spite of the kind of stature that he had. And I wonder if some of us present have plugged up our ears to to godly counsel. Young people do this because they're foolish, naive, and idealistic. Middle-aged people don't listen to counsel because they're insecure and defensive and competitive. I mean, have you ever tried to talk to a 35-year-old couple about some concerns you've had about maybe their child-rearing? They don't want to hear about it. And older people are often unteachable because they're tired, cynical, and grumpy. But you're not going to grow in your, in your walk with God if you're not a teachable person. If you're not willing to have someone help you learn the way of faith better. Now in the Acts 19 passage, the disciples of John the Baptist had some baptism of repentance. They'd been baptized in John's baptism, but they had a huge gap in their knowledge as well. And, you know, that's no big deal, right? They only missed the third person of the Trinity. That's no big deal, is it? And so Paul inquires about this and leads them to a deeper understanding of the work of the Spirit. And when they were told this, they break out speaking in tongues and uttering prophecies. And I think Four Oaks would teach the same thing we do at Wildwood, that 
These are special conditions in the first century. When the first day of Pentecost came and there was a tongues experience, this was meant to show that this message is for the whole world. That's why those tongues were spoken in all those different languages. And every new people group that came to faith in Christ had the same experience, which was to show the apostles to verify for them that the Spirit of God is being poured out on all these different people. So here the same thing happens to these men, and they come into a fuller understanding or maybe even become Christians for the first time. And here's the point in all of this. In both of these stories, there's a lack of knowledge, there's a gap of understanding, and it, ra it raises the question for us, I think, what do I need to know or believe in order to have a solid, knowledgeable faith? Let me give you an example of, of kind of the challenge we have in this. I mean, do you need an exhaustive knowledge of everything? When I was at my brother-in-law's in Ohio over Christmas for a couple days, he's a, he's a self-taught guy, he's a very gracious man. He sort of, everything he's learned, he's, he's learned a lot on his own. And uh, my brother-in-law, and so he had a copy, and I, we have a picture of this book, we have a, he had a copy on his uh, bookcase of John Frame's inter, uh, systematic theology, okay, and this is, uh, this is John Frame's magnum opus. It's 1,220 pages. And I said to Kelly, my brother-in-law, I said, you know, what's interesting about this is that it says it's the introduction <laughs> to Christian belief. This is just the introduction, 1,220 pages of careful, I'm sorry, I'm not used to this thing being here, but it's a careful theology. If this is the introduction, then what's the real thing? And you may know all sorts of stuff about theology. You may know all the words. You may know, all, you may know exactly when Jesus is coming back because you've studied you know, eschatology. I don't know. But what do you need to know? Let me give you two foundations of what I believe you desperately need to know if you're, if you're going to be a solid, informed Christian. And you've, Paul prayed about this earlier, and all of your songs have led to this up in this service. The first thing is, what has Christ done for you? If you don't get that, you may know all the words. You may know all the words about what he's done, the atonement and reconciliation and propitiation and all of these terms and justification. You may know what those terms mean, but do you, have you really grasped what Jesus Christ has done, that his death and resurrection, which we embrace by faith, is the only basis of acceptance with God. I mean, not just have you heard that, you believe that. Do you, do you really want to live that out? I'm not accepted because I try harder, because I'm not as angry as I used to be, or I'm not thinking as many bad thoughts, or I don't yell at my kids as much. That's not why I'm accepted. We tell people at Wildwood, you are accepted by works. They just don't happen to be your works. They happen to be the finished work of Christ. That's why you're accepted. It means your identity and your security and your significance, everything you've ever needed and wanted is found in Christ. As Scotty Smith, one of our pastors, says, if you're a child of God, you can't do anything to make God love you more and you can't do anything to make God love you less. You believe that? 
Because for too many of us, Jesus is our doctrinal and theoretical Savior. I'm not saying we're not Christians. It's just that it's, it's kind of a concept. And other things, the things that Paul prayed about earlier in his prayer, the, the things that really matter to us, you know, our families and our money and our careers and our health and our children, those things become our functional Savior because if they were taken away from us, we would collapse. We wouldn't just be sad, we'd be mad. We wouldn't just be hurt, we'd be hopeless. And here's a good test. If Jesus came to you and said, I'll give you anything in the world you want. Anything. Kind of like a genie. Under one condition. You'll never see my face again. How many of you would want to take that bargain? You'll never see my face again. And if that phrase, you'll never see my face again, puts a shudder down your spine, you say, I, I could never imagine that, then it's probably likely that you're trusting in Jesus in a fairly healthy way. Because if you don't have him, you don't have anything, right? That's the first thing, I would say, in terms of what you need to know. The second one is... Very foundational as well. What's the Spirit doing in me? What has Christ done for me? And what's the Spirit doing in me? That there is a Spirit of God who seeks to come in and change us and mold us and make us. And Christians with a solid and informed faith read John 15, 5, and they, they read that where, where Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And they go, yes! That's that's, what I, that's my experience. This is what I know. This is, this is what I believe. This is what I want. When they read that Paul celebrated his weakness and that power is perfected in weakness, and we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power is from God, a growing, maturing, informed Christian says, that's what I want. I don't want to run my life. I don't want to be my own person. I want Jesus Christ to guide me and lead me. I, I talked to one of the brothers here at Four Oaks uh, a couple weeks ago, maybe last week, and he's had a share of trials, and uh, he said something that really stuck out. He says, you know, I've got nothing. I've got nothing. What he meant by that is that I'm not bringing anything to the table. This isn't about me figuring life out. This isn't about me making it better. I've got nothing. And if, God, and if God doesn't show up for me, I'm lost. That's the kind of need and desperateness that Christ calls us to. You see, spiritual growth isn't becoming more successful and getting your best life now and figuring out what's wrong with you. It, it's, it's becoming more needy and more dependent and more in awe of God as you go along. This is the kind of informed, solid faith that must be the foundation of your life from now on out. What, what has Christ done for me, and what's the Spirit doing in me? Now, the second story is these sons of Sceva. Let's look at that in verse 11. Paul is now in Ephesus, 
And it says, as God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. And the seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. And this is a little humorous. It says, the spirits answered them and said, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who the heck are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. In the apostolic era, there were some very profound power encounters with forces of darkness. There were healings, there was the defeat of evil spirits. And of course, there are people today that want to copy this, copy Paul's ministry with prayer claws and amazing you know, stories of things that have happened I don't know what God's up to around the world. That's his business. But you just need to note that even the Bible says that what Paul did at this moment, what's the word? It was extraordinary. Okay? In other words, way out of the ordinary. Okay? Even for an apostle, these things were super above normal here. Now, these itinerant Jewish exorcists, meaning they were traveling Hebrew kind of magicians. Okay? We don't know who they were. Their dad must have been really proud of them, right? These guys traveled around and they, they tried to heal people and so forth. And they, they saw what Paul did. This power encounter was so great that they saw this power of Jesus. And they said, you know what? We want some of that. And what's relevant for us as we look at what they tried to do is that it's very tempting, and this is what these, these men did, it's very tempting to borrow the words and the, the language and the lifestyle and the name of Jesus to gain some personal advantage. These, these men were not interested in a personal commitment to Jesus, were they? I mean, I don't see that in here. They were not interested in Christ as the Son of God. They were interested and using the Jesus label to further their own ends and to increase their business. They had no intention of submitting or obeying Jesus because he was Savior and Lord of heaven and earth. And we have this problem in our culture today and in our churches. I, I call it, and I think you'd call it too, uh, consumer religion. You know what that is? That's asking, what do I get out of this thing? What's in this for me? I want to go to church and learn how to be a better parent and learn how to manage my kids and help my life and give me peace and give me a boost as I go out into the world. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to be helped. But let me tell you, that's always secondary. That's always a result of following Christ. It's never the reason we follow him. And if anybody is here in, in, at Four Oaks or at Wildwood because you're here for some personal advantage, you may, you may come for that reason, but I can guarantee you over the long haul, you'll never stay for that reason. You're always going to leave. You're going to find 
the next dog and pony show somewhere. There's nothing wrong with seeking God in a crisis. But when we seek him, we're called to trust him and worship him, even if things don't get better. I can't guarantee any of you here that your life's going to get better. That all the things that plague you now are going to go away. That whatever you're wrestling with in, in your family, in your health, with your kids. And oftentimes people come in and want some magic bullet. They, they want to know how to you know, fix it all. And, and the goal of Christianity isn't to fix anything. The goal of Christianity is to, is to seek the face of God in the midst of things that often can't change. Because being a true follower of Jesus means I follow not because life is always good, but because Jesus is always God. That's why I follow. And I want to tell you, that's not easy for any of us, and it's certainly not easy for me. Because I want a good life like you do. And some of the evidence of true personal faith is actually embedded in this story. When this event happened and these men were driven out naked and wounded, it says fear fell upon them all. In other words, reverence. If, if you really want to know God, there's going to be a reverence factor. There's going to be this sense of like, whoa, this is big. This is way beyond me. And the name of Jesus was extolled. It wasn't the sons of Sceva and their business and their schemes, it was Christ that was extolled. And look what it says, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. In other words, they gave up everything else they depended on and said, I'm no longer trusting in these artificial resources. I'm throwing them away. Because I want Christ. That's what a true, personal, internalized faith looks like. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And I calculated that if one piece of silver is a day's wage, that's, this would be the annual salary for 137 people. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that a lot of money? The annual salary for 137 people. That's how much worth and value were in these books. And they gave it all up because they said, this is, this is not our salvation anymore. This is what a personal, internalized faith would look like. Lord, I surrender everything I've depended on. It's not you. Now, the last story is when Paul is in Ephesus. This is in chapter 19, beginning in verse 23. Let's pick, pick it up there. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. 
That was a name for early Christianity. I think it probably came from Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. And the word way, of course, the Greek word for way is odos. We, we get our word odometer. Everybody has an odometer in their car, right, which shows you how far you've gone. That's what this word means. It's, the, it's the, sort of the road. There was no small cons- disturbance concerning the way for a, a, a man named Demetrius, a, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis. We'll talk about this in a minute. Brought no little business to the craftsmen. Then these he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you can see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, and Ephesus was in modern-day Turkey, right, where Paul was here now, I think, on his third missionary journey. Not only in Ephesus, but all, in all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. They said that's Paul's message. And there is a danger that not only this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And when they heard this, they were enraged and cried out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! This sort of a fertility goddess, a cult, the center of life and culture and religion in Ephesus. So the city was filled with confusion. I think this points out what we're going to discover here is the need for a bold faith. In the first place, we need a solid, informed faith. We also need a personal, internalized faith. And now there's the need for a bold faith. You say, why? Well, notice the civil disobedience breaks out, this civil disorder. Paul is charged with ruining the very way of life in Ephesus. There's lots of emotion and anger, but what we read a little bit later, it says in verse 28 that they were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, the city is filled with confusion. It says then in verse 30, but Paul wished to go in among the crowd. He wanted to go right in the middle of this. He wanted to step right in the middle and, and, and talk to them or deal with this in some manner. But the disciples would not let him, and even some of the Asiarchs, these are high-ranking officers in the province of Asia who were his friends said, don't go in there. Don't venture into the theater. Paul says, I'm willing to step right into the middle of this because I've been in lots of cities and I've been beat up and I'm just kind of used to it. But let me tell you what he did that was and you're never going to be in a situation like that, probably, nor am I, where there's a big riot that breaks out, you're going to step in the middle of a you know, mob of people and say, let me talk to you here, I've got some things to tell you. You're never going to get into that, maybe. But let me tell you what Paul did that was particularly bold. He was willing to call out the idols for the worthless things that they are. Isn't that what it says? Paul says... These gods made with hands are not gods. That was the charge against them, and that's probably what he said. He probably went to these people and said, you know, you're, you're, what you worship, you're worshiping in vain. The boldness was, was a willingness to say, 
Whatever you're placing your hopes in is empty. Now let me remind you about the Temple of Artemis. This was the center of cultural life in Ephesus. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. This is what Paul, this is what he dealt with. Okay, this is a replica of that. Can you, and that's 425 feet by 250 feet. I mean, this is a huge 50 or 60 foot columns. This was a significant center of culture and worship. And Paul looks at this and says it's worthless. And so he boldly challenged the entire way of life of these people. Now, let me remind you that people are still worshiping idols today. They're not worshiping statues. They're not worshiping fertility goddesses. But there's other objects of worship and salvation and other ultimate sources of security, aren't there? Money, careers, health. We, we've been down this road. You know, family, children. And let me remind you, and this is something really important. You know, you'll say, well, you know, atheists and these agnostics, you know, they, they, they're non-religious. Everybody worships something. No matter how atheistic you are, you're worshiping something. You just don't call it worship. Everybody, everybody in the world is looking for a plan of salvation, okay? They don't call it that, but it's, it's exactly what that is. It's not religious salvation, but it's salvation in something where they say, this, this gives my life meaning. This is why my life matters. This is why I'm okay. Everybody is seeking that, no matter how non-religious they may be. And, and what's important for people that are caught up in their brains or PhDs or sex or money or status or family or power or glamour or health or politics or, or whatever it is, is to say you're a worshiper. And let me tell you, whatever you're worshiping, whatever it is that you value the most, that will fail you. In the long run, it will probably destroy you. It will disappoint you. The only source of worship and adoration and affection that cannot destroy you or disappoint you or leave you or forsake you is the hope found in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul was bold. And people are powerfully connected to their idols. There's a verse 34 here that said, they shouted for two hours, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. I mean, some of you FSU fans don't, don't shout that long at football games, right? Two hours, great as Artemis of the Ephesians! And in the midst of that fervor, in the midst of that passion, Paul is saying to these people, it's worthless. Whatever your friends are depending on, whatever you're depending on, whatever it is, if it's not Christ, it will fail. It doesn't mean it, it's, it, those are bad things. I love what Tim Keller says. He says, idols aren't evil things. They're often good things turned into ultimate things. You ever hear that before? Idols are good things turned into ultimate things. Whatever you're depending on will fail you. And let me give you one other example of Paul's boldness, and I, I want to close with this 
illustration, and this is a little bit later in the book of Acts. You're, you're not there yet, but I, don't, I hope I don't spoil this, you know, when Dave or Paul or one of your pastors preaches on this. But beginning in Acts 21, you'll discover that Paul gets arrested, and he's no longer in charge of his own life. He's now under the jurisdiction of the Romans, and he goes back and forth between various venues, and he has to explain himself, you know, Paul, what are you doing? You know, why are people so angry at you? And so he's back and forth to different... Jewish and Roman kind of courts. And in Acts 26, Paul is now standing before Festus, the Roman governor, kind of like Pilate would have been when Jesus was alive, you know. And with him is Agrippa and Bernice, the Jewish uh, king and queen. This would have been the great-grandson of Herod the Great, Agrippa. And Paul is explaining to Agrippa and Festus what happened to him, and he shares his testimony. He goes through his story of conversion. And finally, Festus stops him. This is in verse 24 of Acts 26. It says, as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind just kind of a backhanded compliment. You know, you're so smart, you're now like crazy, you know. You've studied so much, now you're like goofy, Paul, because Festus was hearing things about the resurrection that he, were not in his, sort of, is not in his frame of reference. And Paul says to him, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I'm speaking true and rational words. And then, Paul sort of turns to the king. This is the Jewish king now, okay? For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. And now he turns, which is a little unprecedented when you're a defendant, you know, you're answering to higher powers to turn and ask them a question. That's pretty, pretty bold and pretty unprecedented. And he says this, King Agrippa... Do you believe the prophets? Which is a kind of like asking if you've stopped beating your wife yet or something. You know, like if you say yes or no, you're implicated. You know, yes, no. You know, I don't know if Agrippa knew what to say. He says, I know that you believe them. And Agrippa defers the comment and says to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And here's where boldness really begins to grip. It's one thing saying to people, you know, your idols aren't going to satisfy you. They're not going to matter in the long run. Here's, here's where you get, you know, you, you become a bolder Christian. It's rooted in this kind of encounter. And Paul said to him this, whether short or long, I would, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am. Now let me remind you, here is, here is Paul, beleaguered, incarcerated, people think he's nuts, he's proclaiming the, the grace of a, of a crucified Savior, which people in the Roman world thought was foolish. He's probably a little destitute, 
and he's talking to a, a king, opulent, famous, free, beautiful wife. And Paul looks at him and says, I, I wish you were like me. You know, a lot of us believe it's okay to be Christians for ourselves, but we look at our lives and say, you know, I, I'm not doing so well, and I'm really struggling, and, you know, my marriage is not so great, and I'm, I'm having difficulty with my kids, and I don't know, I, I get kind of discouraged about things, and I, I, I really don't want anybody to be like me. It's okay for me to be what I am, but I, I, I wouldn't want anybody else to have to be me. And Paul says, no. I would wish that you and anybody else who hears me would, would be as I am. That's a very bold thing to say when you're a prisoner, when you have nothing in the eyes of the world, when you're a nobody. Because you say you have the most important thing, which is a relationship with the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And if you don't have that, friend, Agrippa, if you don't have that, you have nothing. Let me close with an illustration that I think might help you in this. When we flew back from Germany here in February, um, I like to look at the GPS monitor and to see where we are and so forth. And on this particular aircraft, they had something I'd never seen before, which was uh, periodically they showed um, the location of shipwrecks down in the ocean, kind of a foreboding thing, you know. The Lusitania, you know, sunk by the Germans in 1915. And so they had these places where these shipwrecks occurred. And I thought to myself, I wonder if we get closer to the U.S. if they'll show the Titanic. And sure enough, this little dot pops up and it says Titanic. Kind of where it sank, 1912. That's kind of fascinating, isn't it? And here's the illustration. Suppose you were on the Titanic and you were rescued. You were on a lifeboat. Would you want those people that were still on the boat to be like you? Wouldn't you? There's some rich people on there, some people of note, some people that have great reputations. There are people there that have done a lot of things in the world, and here I am, I'm in a lifeboat, and I'm cold, and I'm hungry, and I'm wet, and I don't have anything left. All my possessions are, are going to sink, you know. They're all gone. But you would say, I wish all those people were like me because I'm on the lifeboat. I am, I am safe, and they're drowning. Technically, they're still rich. Technically, they're still important. Technically, they still have big names, but they're going down. And that's why I want people to be like me. Not because I'm so great, but because I found the most important thing. I've been rescued from disaster by the grace and the blood and the mercy and the merits of Jesus Christ. And there's nothing else more important than that. This is why Paul was bold to look at a king and say, I wish you were like me. And so I hope you can see in this kind of the sweep of stories in this chapter, these two chapters, of our need for an informed faith, solid faith, 
our need for a personal and internalized faith, and our need for a bold faith that can say to anyone we meet, I would wish you'd be like me, not because I'm great, but because Jesus Christ is great. Let's pray together.